Section 2 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1, Spirit of Rational Inquiry in Protestantism, Part 2. This opposition did not commence within the universities or among professional theologians, although it speedily spread to both. It was started first of all, or at least first attracted prominent attention, in the writings of a layman, whose Christian sensibilities were repelled by the doctrine of predestination. Footnote. Theodore Kornhirt, who was not alone in his opposition, but his name has come prominently to the front of the movement. End of footnote. Notwithstanding the attempts made to convince him of his errors, he remained obstinate and was finally proclaimed a heretic. Out of this movement there arose in 1586 a demand for a formal revision of the Belgic Confession. The question was taken up by two ministers at Delft, who in the course of their arguments started a distinction which became in itself a fresh element of controversy. The necessities of logic compelled them to ask whether the divine decree had reference to the fall of man, and specially embraced it, or, so to speak, only came into operation after, and dependently upon, this great event. The former of these views became known as supralapsarianism, the latter as infralapsarianism. It was in these circumstances that James Herman, or Harmonson, better known as Arminius, had his attention specially called to the subject. He was invited to undertake the defense of the doctrine of his master, Beza, thus assailed and misinterpreted. But, as sometimes happens, the chosen defender became the most serious impugner of Calvinism. Arminius, in the course of his inquiries, gradually lost faith in the old doctrine, and passed even beyond the modified position of the Delphian theologians to a more decided attitude of hostility towards it. He became the leader of a distinguished group of anti-Calvinists, as his name has been taken to stamp the movement which he first made prominent with its enduring historical title. Whatever may be thought of the system of theology known as Arminianism, beyond question Arminius himself was a man not only of clear head and rare culture, but of earnest practical piety. He had received a singularly elaborate education both in philosophy and in theology, having studied not only at Utrecht and Leiden in his own country, but with Beza at Geneva and Grineus at Basel. At the latter place he had so distinguished himself that the theological faculty wished to confer upon him the degree of doctor in divinity, although he was only twenty-two years of age, an honor which he sensibly declined. To his varied mental acquisitions and acquaintance with the state of theological study in these great Protestant centers, he superadded the advantages of travel in Italy. He visited Rome and resided for some time at the University of Padua, chiefly for the sake of pursuing his philosophical studies under the guidance of Zabarella whose name at this time drew many students to that ancient seat of learning. During all his foreign travels and studies he seems to have lived a frugal and earnest life, carrying with him, we are told, for the exercise of piety his Greek testament and Hebrew psalter. After a further brief residence at Geneva, he returned to Holland in 1587, and became one of the ministers of Amsterdam. At first received with some disfavor on account of his supposed intercourse with the papal authorities while at Rome, he soon obtained great popularity by his gifts as a preacher. To clearness and force of judgment, he united a singularly winning and persuasive eloquence. His voice is spoken of as slender but touching in its modulations and capacity of adapting itself to the varying themes of his discourse. None heard him but confessed themselves moved, enlightened, and sharpened in their religious thoughts. A certain sharpening quality, quick, decisive, and polishing in its effects, like a whetstone or file, seems to have been his distinguishing characteristic. Pastors and preachers, as well as ordinary citizens, flocked to hear him, and welcomed with admiration his instructions. 
it was while quietly pursuing this career of usefulness and popularity that arminius was called upon to adjudicate regarding the doctrine in which he had been taught and the more he occupied himself with the subject the more did he see cause to modify the conclusions of calvin and beza he corresponded with francis junius then professor of theology at leyden continued with unremitting ardor his biblical researches and pondered deeply the questions of liberty and necessity gradually his change of sentiments began to show itself in his sermons and he was more than once accused of a defection from reformed orthodoxy it was not however till his appointment in sixteen o three to succeed his friend junius at leyden that formal opposition broke out betwixt him and the orthodox party headed by francis gomar his colleague in the university herminius charged gomar with so teaching the doctrine of predestination as to make god the author of sin gomar on the other hand accused arminius of pelagianism or in other words of so exalting the human element in redemption as to obscure or destroy altogether the doctrine of divine grace a general synod was convoked in sixteen o six with a view of settling the controversy later a conference was held betwixt the two main disputants themselves but all was without effect theological rancor had been thoroughly roused the watchwords of the conflict circulated amongst the clergy and people and were bandied to and fro in the pulpit the senate and the market-place as in the early days of the trinitarian controversy political interests and rivalries mingled in the agitation and complicated the result the disturbance prevailed not only in holland but spread violently to england and other countries the synod of dort in sixteen eighteen while giving an authoritative deliverance on the questions involved which was accepted by the main sections of the reformed church yet by this very act as well as by its course of procedure served to deepen and give consistency to the schism for the arminians or remonstrants as they were called were thus driven to form a separate organization and to perpetuate their special theological views in schools and institutions of their own footnote they were so called from having addressed a remonstrance in five articles to the states-general of holland and west friesland in sixteen ten and footnote it was not till sixteen thirty that they were fully tolerated and allowed peaceably to reside in the cities and villages of holland arminius himself soon passed away from the strife he died in sixteen o nine but his successor simon episcopius brought all the resources of a marvellous temper and address as well as a most accomplished erudition to the aid of the party while he gave to its principles a more systematic elaboration than arminius himself was probably capable of imparting to them it was upon this distinguished leader that the defence of the remonstrance devolved at the synod of dort and one at least of the addresses which he delivered on this occasion is marked by the highest qualities of enlightened reason and comprehensive charity footnote the conclusion of this address which will be found afterwards alluded to and partly quoted in hale's letters amply bears out what we say a fairer and more christian spirit expressed in more sententious and admirable language it would be difficult to conceive episcopius was not only the theological head of arminianism in succession to his friend and teacher arminius but above all others its literary and organizing genius the confession was composed during his exile in brabant following the synod of dort and was published in sixteen twenty two the apology appeared after his return to holland in sixteen twenty six with the first remission of the civil persecution against the remonstrance End footnote. the distinctive principles of arminianism all take their start from the fundamental modification of the cardinal doctrine of predestination initiated by arminius and in connection with which the whole movement arose the divine decree to which human salvation is to be attributed was according to calvin's conception absolute and irresistible it implied a divine partition of the human race into saved and not saved originating in the pure will and determination of god 
the decisiveness of the decree was quite as real on the negative as on the positive side the reprobate as they were called were as definitely marked out as the saved the whole drama of the moral world in short in its antagonism of good and evil hung upon the absolute fiat of an almighty will the delphian theologians had so far sought to modify this tremendous doctrine as to exclude from the sphere of the divine determinism the origin of evil or in other words the event of the fall arminius passed beyond this modification which merely conditioned the divine by one inscrutable human act and extended the conditioning process more or less to all human acts in other words he passed out of the pure sphere of the divine to which calvin and his followers tended to confine their view and brought prominently forward the free activity of the human will as a co-determinant in the work of salvation the essential difference that remained was as to the character and measure of this co-determination for even the most rigorous calvinism could not exclude it altogether was the primary preponderant and truly conditioning element in salvation with man or with god it was the idea on the part of the calvinists that the principles of arminius virtually implied the denial of divine grace and transferred the work of salvation both in its origin and execution from god to man that made them accuse him of pelagianism and excited such a stormy enthusiasm against the party the logical suspicion was a justification of religious earnestness but not of unchristian violence again it was the idea on the part of the arminians that the calvinism of beza and gomar converted the divine will into mere fate or an arbitrary instead of moral and loving activity and so made god the author of sin which kindled the intensity of their opposition and made them suffer all manner of hardness rather than yield their convictions they were right in vindicating the voluntary and ethical side of religion but it does not follow that they were right in their interpretation and denunciation of their opponent's system it is no part of our intention and would be quite beside our purpose to enter into any consideration of the relative truth or value of these rival theologies the connection of our subject with arminianism is entirely apart from the validity or invalidity of its special dogmatic theories it must be confessed by impartial thinkers that these theories look pale and dubious across the distance at which we contemplate them using the same logical weapons and not shrinking from their application to the deepest mysteries of the divine action arminianism does not certainly succeed in explaining these mysteries or making intelligible the rationale of the divine action in the work of salvation any better than calvinism while the latter has the great advantage of being a more powerful and coherent system it starts from the higher divine side and argues out courageously and organically its conclusions towards divine ends if we are to theorize at all about such matters and not at once recognize that our forms of logic or scientific statement are incompetent to deal with them then calvinism may be pronounced the higher theory of the two arminianism breaks down in its logic while it uses with a confidence quite equal to its antagonist the weapon which pierces its own side but arminianism was a great deal more than a dogmatic theory it was also or at least it rapidly became a method of religious inquiry the method grew out of the necessities of the system instead of forming the system in the ordinary manner but soon became its most vital element and has alone given to it enduring significance in the history of christian thought it revived the suppressed rational side of the original protestant movement and for the first time organized it into a definite power and assigned it its due place both in theology and the church it was inevitable that arminianism should make a new appeal to the intellectual side of protestantism it could only make good its form of doctrine and vindicate its position within the reformed churches by biblical inquiry and argument its beginning we have seen was in the reaction of the christian feeling against the oppression of the calvinistic doctrine it sprang from the moral rather than from the intellectual side of the protestant christian consciousness but it could not make a movement at all still less could this movement assume force and significance without a new and direct appeal to scripture 
and no sooner therefore was the spiritual difficulty started by others taken up and pursued by arminius than it plunged him into a fresh and elaborate course of biblical inquiry he felt that he must retrace all his dogmatic theories in the light of scripture and bring them again to its test and this renewed spirit of scriptural inquiry was more fully taken up by episcopius its rules were worked out and its applications pursued and methodized protestantism had started on its course with an appeal to scripture loudly proclaimed it had confronted the pope with the bible and the right of all to interpret its contents and search for the truth therein but the process of inquiry thus initiated had been rapidly arrested by the necessities of the age nay it had never been fairly and fully carried out neither luther nor calvin had succeeded in approaching scripture with free and unbiased minds both read it under the influence of augustinian prepossessions which directed and colored all the course of their interpretations Zwingli and melanchthon brought more open and truly rational minds to the study of the bible but in the crisis which ensued neither of them gave the prevailing impress to the confessional theology of the protestant churches this theology in its main types was entirely cast in the mould of the great theologian of the fifth century who had communicated his thoughts to western christendom with such force that they have never since ceased vitally to influence it but not only was the process of biblical inquiry thus specially modified and limited in the outset of the reformation it was directly hindered and brought to a temporary conclusion by the course of things the question of authority became so urgent that everything else was comparatively forgotten an exacting demand was made upon all the protestant churches to give an account of themselves of the definite doctrines which they taught and the principles for which they claimed to exist not only with reference to the roman catholicism which they repudiated but to the civil communities in which they sought to establish themselves and the social and ecclesiastical necessities which they professed to satisfy hence the multiplicity of creeds or confessions following the reformation one of the most extraordinary phenomena in christian history the full significance of which has hardly been appreciated within a period of about thirty years protestant christendom added upwards of twenty confessions to the three creeds which had hitherto satisfied the christian church lutheranism was content with one main confession to which however it speedily added four supplementary and explanatory documents but in the reformed churches confession rapidly followed confession till their number reached a goodly volume less than one page of which would contain the creed which the united christendom of the east and west in the fourth century judged to be amply adequate for all purposes of christian communion denouncing an anathema upon those who should venture to impose anything further upon the christian conscience footnote in niemeyer's collection of confessions in the reformed church there are reckoned twenty-eight distinct confessions some of which however are of later date than the period to which we refer in addition to the augsburg confession which may be said to begin the series of protestant creeds in fifteen thirty lutheranism recognizes among its symbolical books the apology of the confession the articles of smalcald luther's catechisms and the formula of concord already noticed as closing the series in fifteen seventy seven end of footnote this mass of confessional theology was the result of temporary exigencies the churches of the reformation could not well help themselves or avoid the task thrown upon them but it exercised at the time and has continued to exercise an injurious influence upon the development of christian thought it did so then in two ways it exhausted too rapidly the spirit of religious research and left the theological mind at the close of the sixteenth century as the medieval theology had done before to feed only upon results instead of carrying on with ever fresh light the study of scripture it introduced a new reign of traditionalism but it not only tended thus directly to diminish the power of religious inquiry it encompassed its exercise with difficulties and even dangers theologians were warned as by so many fences from approaching scripture save through the medium of dogmatic conclusions already reached 
these conclusions speedily came to be identified with scripture itself and to take something of its direct authority nay with that natural tendency which lies in all men and all churches to love and prefer their own things before all others and to impart the highest religious sanction to the familiar formulae of childhood and of christian habit the dogmas of each church came to acquire to the popular mind a special sacredness which it has always been comparatively slow to accord to the more simple and concrete statements of scripture it was a theory of the reformation churches no doubt as it remains the theory of all protestant churches to this day that their confessions only possess authority in so far as they represent the word of god and that they are consequently subject to revision with advancing learning and experience but no theory was ever more inoperative in point of fact the confession becomes the measure of the word of god and not the word of god the measure of the confession and no national protestant church so far as we know has ever ventured deliberately to revise its confession such then was the position of protestantism in the end of the sixteenth and the beginning of the seventeenth century its spiritual impulse on the continent at least was already spent its theology had become a tradition of augustinianism with certain lutheran and calvinian accretions polemically adjusted to the errors of popery within the german church there raged a spirit of blind contentiousness which had well-nigh eaten all heart out of the noble teaching of luther and melanchthon within the reformed churches such theologians as beza and melville and gomar all of an essentially polemical temper and an inferior order of spiritual genius had taken the place of zwingli and calvin and knox these men were not only not inquirers any more than luther and calvin had been but they were destitute of the elevation of mind and the dignity and grandeur of spirit which made the dogmatism of the great german and swiss reformers tolerable they were confessional theologians men who had grown up under the shadow of the new dogmatism rather than originated or formed it it admits of no question that the confessionalism of the reformed churches was already beginning before the close of the century of the reformation to burden christian minds which had not lost all sense of freedom in which any trace of the original protestant spirit survived this is clearly seen in the writings of the early arminians the preface to the remonstrant confession drawn up after the synod of dort is little else than an elaborate apology for the very idea of a new confession and the apologist only succeeds in his object by virtually abandoning the principle of confessions altogether he explains at length that there was no intention of placing any further imposition upon the conscience but only of indicating the sense and meaning in which he and others the remonstrants understood scripture in this respect confessions are declared to be useful as indices or guides of christian opinion but not as compulsory enactments as such they had already done much harm the setting forth of so many symbols and forms of belief had hindered christian inquiry impeded christian liberty and opened the way to factions and schisms in the church the authority of scripture had been thereby more and more weakened until at length it had fallen away and been transferred to these human formularies as more perfect all judgments and opinions pertaining to religion had become so associated with these formularies and depended upon them that quote, men waving and undervaluing the sacred scripture appealed to them as unexceptionable rules and he that swerved but a finger's breadth from them although moved thereto by a reverence for scripture itself was without any farther proof accused and condemned of heresy arminianism became the special and formal outlet for all this mental uneasiness in protestantism the long suppressed stream of religious thought burst forth afresh when once the wall of augustinian dogmatism was fairly breached the living waters not only of a broader spiritual feeling and a conciliatory instead of dividing doctrinism but of critical and speculative inquiry began to flow a rational spirit sprang up and developed itself rapidly under all obstacles and although this same spirit has frequently spent itself in arid tracts of mere intellectualism or wandered into morasses of vulgar and superficial rationalism it has never since altogether ceased 
its presence may be traced in all the subsequent development of protestantism in a nobler and more comprehensive thoughtfulness and freshening life if also here and there in a weakened and reduced christianity and defective religious interest this renewed manifestation of the rational spirit in protestantism touched three points or assumed three main directions all significant and important one scripture two the authority of the church in the interpretation of scripture or the whole subject of creeds and confessions and three a point to which we have not hitherto alluded but which became as will be seen one of the most influential in the course of rational religious thought namely the limits of dogma or the distinction between fundamental and not fundamental articles of christian belief one the arminians recognized the supreme authority of scripture no less than the calvinists and equally traced the element of authority in it not to any decree of the church or acceptance by the church of the several canonical books but to the revealed doctrine itself in its admirable force and efficacy the truth of scripture was held as declaring itself and in the very fact of doing so making known to the mind and conscience its autocratical or absolute and supreme power it shone forth in short as an authoritative light by its own intrinsic lustre this divine-like authority belongs to nothing else and by the scriptures alone therefore quote, as by touchstones and firm immovable rules must all controversies and debates in religion be tried and examined and according to them decided so as to leave the judgment of truth finally to god alone speaking in his own word so far there was no difference in the biblical theory of the two parties there was no question raised as yet by the most forward theological intelligence as to the character of divine inspiration or the relative divine value of the various books of the bible the patristic traditions as to the composition of these books their organic connection uniform meaning and equivalent authority remained as yet unbroken historical criticism in the modern sense was not born till much later although we can trace its tentative and imperfect beginnings in episcopius grotius and others by the time of its birth arminianism had long ceased to have any significance as a distinctive phase of christian thought but it is nevertheless true that a more purely grammatical and historical exegesis which may be said to be if not the parent yet the lineal predecessor of that great instrument of modern thought took its rise in the arminian school and was greatly helped by the intellectual and literary influences which proceeded from it footnote the remonstrant confession emphasizes in a very marked manner the necessity of interpreting scripture in the same manner as any other book according to its native and literal sense understanding by this not merely the bare sense of separate passages but the meaning agreeable to right reason and the very mind and intention of him that uttered the words this is surely something like an anticipation of the critico-historical method the document proceeds in emphatic language but to desire to fetch or take this exposition from any other author head or fountain whatsoever to wit from any symbol or creed of men's making or analogy of faith in this or that place received or any public confession of churches or from the decrees of councils or consent of fathers one or other though even the most or greatest part of them is a thing too uncertain and oftentimes dangerous End of footnote. but while agreeing in their general theory as to scripture the arminians and calvinists differed in their application of the theory and the difference proved very important the calvinists recognized in scripture not merely an authoritative guide to the reason and the conscience but a coactive and constraining power over the reason and conscience the authority of scripture said the arminians is merely directive it is the witness of the holy spirit in the divine word but it can only be brought near to the individual and become operative by his own free inquiry and assent the infallibility of scripture in short to the one was an embodied rule a coactive decision which the church was entitled to apply to heretics and dissenters from the common orthodoxy 
to the other it was nothing more than a private judgment which all might reach for themselves which all honestly inquiring minds did reach for themselves it was not and could not be an external power capable of being wielded by the church and any claim to exercise such a power was strongly repudiated this proved one of the main points of disagreement betwixt the two parties such a private liberty of interpreting scripture of prophesying as it was called was intolerable to the calvinists of the seventeenth century all the more that they felt the logical pinch of the conclusion involved for where was the right of private judgment at all save in this form if the truth of scripture is to be infallibly declared and enforced in the teaching of the orthodox where is the essential difference betwixt the protestant and the papal infallibility the calvinian dogmatist was ready to reply that his judgment was according to scripture and only claimed force as such and that if such a claim was not allowed there could be no end of controversy in the church but then this was the very point in question which judgment was really according to scripture the arminian was no less sturdy in his dogmatism so far that his was the truly scriptural judgment and so the question was brought back to the point from which it should have started was private judgment really the right of all were the individual reason and conscience absolutely free in the light of the divine word theoretically calvinism professed to hold the affirmative which was a primary postulate of the reformation and there is nothing in any of the protestant confessions at variance with it but in point of fact orthodox protestantism in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries did not remain true to its own principle or carry it out consistently to its conclusion arminianism attempted to do so and so far while elevating scripture to the same supremacy as calvinism differed from it in its estimate of the supremacy the supreme authority of scripture however nominally recognized could hardly be maintained practically in the face of the numerous confessions which had already settled and proclaimed its meaning a protestantism which had elaborated and concluded its theology in the most minute points naturally fell back upon its own work and in all cases of controversy interposed the secondary authority which it had set up as virtually absolute the primacy of scripture remained a dogma among other dogmas but it ceased to have any living influence arminianism sought to revive this influence and to reassert in its full meaning the principle of private judgment or the indefeasible right of every man to examine and decide the truth of scripture for himself it recognized no other rule of faith even as subordinate no interpretation of scripture however profitable or invested with whatever sanction as entitled to come between the soul and the divine word in the face of all the opposition which it encountered it asserted incessantly and tried to work out in all its practical applications the great truth recognized indeed but unrealized by other phases of protestantism that god alone is lord of the conscience two in carrying out this truth it was led to attack the whole system of confessions it prepared indeed a confession of its own but in doing so it expressly repudiated any claim to do more than draw out an expository and vindicatory document symbols and confessions it held according to their true meaning and even their ancient usage to have no other design but to testify not what was to be believed but what the authors of themselves believed they were not to be received as certain indices or discoverers much less as judges of the true sense or meaning of scripture but only as indices of that sense or meaning which the authors of them held for true they were mirrors of christian opinion formulated expressions of the christian consciousness of the time and in such a case as that of the arminians themselves served to declare and make clear their position and opinions and so to disperse the accusations and calumnies to which they had been subjected in their own language they were like lighthouses to show to the unwary and imprudent the shoals and quicksands of error hurtful to piety and salvation 
and moreover apologies against calumniators whereby all might understand how false were the charges brought against them but in no respect were they to be held as limiting the freedom of christian discussion or as fountains of faith controversies were not to be brought to their anvil but to be fearlessly prosecuted and decided by the word of god alone as the only rule beyond all exception the private judgment was always entitled to bring these forms themselves under review and even without scruple to contradict them this was the only adequate security against their being set up as idols in the church and placed in an equal degree of honor with scripture and made fetters for the human conscience above all they were not to be held as limiting the truth of god so that those who were unable or who refused to receive them were thereby excluded from salvation or shut out from the kingdom of heaven in short they were useful as ensigns or standards declarative of the belief of those who set them forth but no farther no deliverance of synod nor decree of council had or could have in itself or in virtue of its official enunciation any sacredness which might not be fairly and fully challenged extremes of criticism or mere license of opinionativeness were of course to be avoided christian controversy should always be moderate and charitable it was the part of prudence to weigh things and the times and places in which this or that opinion might be fitly propounded it was the part of charity to have a regard to persons that they be not offended or troubled who ought to be edified but no human enactment however deliberate or formal had any right to stand between the conscience and god no protestant party ventured to maintain in theory that confessions were in their composition other than human and fallible documents yet in admitting this the dominant orthodoxy strongly contended for the infallibility of the doctrines taught in them and their compulsory relation to the individual conscience the most able and thoroughgoing exponents of the system held so much beyond doubt believing that all controversies were determined in scripture they also believed that it was within the power of the church to declare these determinations with certainty in other words they believed that the church though not infallible itself might determine infallible points as an earthen pitcher for thus they ventured to illustrate their position might contain gold and precious rubies and sapphires although there was no gold in the matter of the pitcher itself but only clay the infallible truth no doubt may be hidden as treasure in the earthly vessel of the church like gems in a pitcher of clay but then this is not the question the real analogy is not with the truth thus treasured in the church but with the truth expressed and formulated by human argument every proposition of fallible men must share in their fallibility and there is no escape from this save by leaving the divine truth in its original form in scripture the gems may remain pure and precious within their enclosure but not when broken up and mixed with common clay supposing the church capable of giving infallible decisions according to scripture it may well be supposed also capable of applying and enforcing them the element of compulsion was ultimately traced to god yet ministerially it was held to belong to the church or to the civil magistrate as executive of the church it was the duty of the magistrate to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church that the truth of god be kept pure and entire and that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed it was allowed indeed that compulsion could not make men religious or change their beliefs conscience where it did not manifest itself by illicit acts was not to be muzzled or enforced this would have been an inquisitorial tyranny too intolerable but all expressed opinions at variance with those of the church were not only to be reproved but forcibly repressed god has given even to a single pastor far more to a synod of pastors and doctors power to rebuke with authority to lay on burdens and decrees whoever will not hear an ambassador virtually refuses to hear the prince who has sent him whoever despises the minister of god despises god himself and when offenders were obstinate 
and heretics hardened, they were to be handed over without mercy to the civil magistrate for punishment, if necessary for punishment unto death. This was a conclusion, as is well known, from which none of the reformers, not even Melanchthon, shrank, and which was strongly maintained in England even in the middle of the seventeenth century. All this system of confessional and church authority was vigorously attacked by Arminianism. The principle of private judgment, consistently carried out and applied without reserve, swept it away, although not without a long-continued and violent struggle. 3. But perhaps the most significant and solvent of all the rational principles enunciated by Arminianism was the distinction betwixt fundamental and non-fundamental doctrines. This distinction not only assailed the narrowness and stringency of the prevailing Protestant dogmatism, but the whole idea upon which dogmatism, whether Roman Catholic or Protestant, was built. And there is abundant evidence, as in the case of Chillingworth's opponent, not, that the Roman Catholics, no less than the Calvinists and Puritans, felt the force of this assault. It raised the vital question as to the essential character of Christianity and the conditions of Christian communion. Did any series of dogmas, after all, constitute Christianity? Was it not rather a personal belief in one or two great facts, a very few things which alone are precisely necessary to be known and believed for the obtaining of eternal life? And has the Church right to insist upon anything beyond the acknowledgment of these facts as its formal basis? Is the profession of any doctrinal belief or theological creed at all necessary to Christian communion? The Arminians inclined to answer these last questions in the negative. The only fundamental truths they maintained were the facts lying at the basis of Christianity as contained in the language of Scripture, or at the utmost as expressed in the Apostles' Creed. They not only refused to move the sphere of authority beyond Scripture, but they strove to bring the compass of faith within the simple bounds of the primitive church. As we proceed, we shall find ample evidence of the working of this fruitful principle, and of the earnestness with which it was taken up and advocated by our series of rational divines. These several forces of free opinion, or, more truly, several manifestations of the same right of free inquiry, reappear again and again, sometimes in a desultory, sometimes in a more organic form. Protestantism found in them its full meaning, and gradually they have leavened the spirit of modern thought. Holland continued their chief home in the seventeenth century, but they found a congenial soil in the minds of a few of the most distinguished members of the Church of England, and grew up, amidst many difficulties, into a party which has never ceased to influence it and the character of English religious opinion. Special causes have also nursed a rational spirit within the bosom of the English Church. It sprang, and continues to spring, naturally out of its constitution but in its origin it was greatly indebted to the movement of the Dutch Remonstrance, and can only be understood fully in connection with it, and the general course of Protestant thought, which in this chapter we have endeavored to sketch. End of chapter 1, part 2